Water and welcome to Woodhouse Keeping, a show about Woodhouse PG. We take one book and give it a long look, then move on chronologically. Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of Woodhouse Keeping, the podcast where I, Ian Coburn, look at the books of the humorous author P.G. Woodhouse in chronological order, although my friend suggested I call it a podcast. Today's episode is about The White Feather, Woodhouse's eighth book and sixth of his books devoted to public school life and the second to be set at Riken School. That's public school in the British sense. There will be spoilers and there will be some discussion of racism. I am joined by Ujwal Deb, based in the Netherlands, who I met on the fans of Woodhouse Facebook group, which I personally think should be called Plumsnet. A short apology may be in order for not delivering an episode on the Kid Brady stories, as I promised to do. I just couldn't muster enough enthusiasm to do it. And as it's only six stories, not a full book, and it wasn't published in book form in Woodhouse's lifetime, I feel I've got some justification in skipping it. It was published in book form in 2013, along with A Man of Means, a 1914 serial, so there's still a possibility of covering both these two half books in a single episode. As it happens, I will refer to one of the Kid Brady stories in the course of this episode. I usually ask my guests before we start about their history with Woodhouse, such as when you first became aware of him. Uh, well, I think that must have been when I was, what is it, 10, 11 years old. So my dad was a, a big Woodhouse fan. So we used to live in a in a small town in sort of southern India. And my dad was uh, head of research for a paper corporation. And as it turned out, the library, for some reason, fell under the, the aegis of the research uh, institute, right? And but so my dad also had the responsibility of making sure he picked the right books for the library, right? And so he picked like a bunch of Woodhouse books. And uh, the first one I read, I think, was A Few Quick Ones, which was a set of short stories, right? And uh, that sort of hooked me and I started to read more and more. I think his school stories were things which I kind of came to probably about pretty early on, right? So I read The Pot Hunters and The White Feather and The Gold Bat, or what I thought was an insight into the, the British public school system, which obviously I'd never seen. Uh, so it was just one of those things which was good to kind of learn about and, and know. So I, I probably have a very cockeyed view of how the, the British public school system works. But uh, <laughs> What kind of school did you go to? So I, I did go to um, what we call in India a missionary school. So essentially uh, it was St. Joseph's in Bangalore. Um, but I also went to uh, a you know, couple of sort of non-denominational schools as well. So it's a little bit of everything. So you were roughly the target age for these school stories when you actually read them. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know, what was I, like maybe 12? What's your favourite Woodhouse book? Oh, that's uh, Leave It to Smith, without a doubt. I've read it, uh, I think, a thousand times. Right? Oh, yes. Are there any other authors you're particularly fond of? Uh, I mean... Conan Doyle is another favorite. And also Alistair McLean is, is a big favorite. That was my topic for uh, Mastermind when I when I went on Mastermind as well. So. Oh, gosh. <laughs> wow. I didn't do very well because uh, as it turned out, the topic I had signed up for was the works of Alistair McLean. But the when I got there for the recording, it turned out to be the l- life and works of Alistair McLean. So that no. uh, was a bit of a bummer. <laughs> didn't know anything about his life so 
I, I read some of his books when I was at school, but I've not thought about him since, I don't think. But yeah, they're quite exciting, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, you like them. Yeah. And um, you're our first Indian guest, which is long overdue because nowadays the epicenter of his popularity is in India, it seems. Um, that is true, actually. Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know if that varies much from region to region or if it's uh, across the board. No, I think it's it's across the board. Actually, so uh, even though I, I, I grew up in South India, my parents are originally from Delhi. And so I uh, lived in Delhi for a, a while as well, right? And I think the I think the oldest, it, it, is, it may be the oldest uh, Woodhouse society or Woodhouse College society is probably in uh, St. Stephen's College in, in Delhi, which is the in Delhi University, I think. And it's been around for donkey's years, right? So uh, I don't know. Yeah. I didn't go to St. Stephen's College myself, but uh, it's just one of those things which, you know, uh, a lot of sort of worthies from uh, in the diplomatic service and all that from India uh, all came from St. Stephen's and all of them were Woodhouse fans. I think the, the probably the most famous is uh, Shashi Tharoor, who was Deputy Secretary General of the UN and, and so on. Right? He's a big Woodhouse fan and he talks about it in all his interviews and stuff. There's a Woodhouse Society in the Netherlands as well, isn't there? Uh, there is, actually. I've never been to a meeting, though I, you know, I've uh, corresponded with a few of the people who are in it. I don't know why I, I never actually went. Uh, I think the, the meetings were not at the right time. It was during the day and I had to work or something. I can't remember exactly. But uh... Moving on to The White Feather. The White Feather was published in six instalments in The Captain magazine between October 1905 and March 1906. It was published in book form by A&C Black in 1907 and the illustrations in the book version were by William Townend, Woodhouse's old school pal and lifelong best friend. working title of the book was The Honour of the House. Dedication. The dedication was to my brother Dick. This was Richard Lancelot Dean Woodhouse, Blum's younger brother, 11 years his junior. He would have been 15 years old at the time of the book publication. I think this is possibly the most serious of Woodhouse's school novels and perhaps from the point of view of drama, his best one yet, but less humorous than some of the others. I, I think that's right. I think the Pot Hunters is probably my favourite in terms of just the, the sheer humour uh, and mm. the way, especially the characters like Charteris and so on, right? But you're right, over here, the, the sort of the explicit humour is probably less than you would sort of expect from a Woodhouse novel in some sense, right? Uh, Yes, Chartres is a favourite character of mine, and in all of the other school stories, there seems to be an equivalent of Chartres, a wise cracking character who's the one that makes all the funny remarks, and there isn't really one in this novel. Right. So no, you're right. Yeah. It seems that this is an attempt to write a more serious story, and I think it comes off quite well, but if you're only interested in reading Woodhouse for laughter it might be not a favorite yeah no i can see that there is humor i was going to say but it's more in the the turns of phrases a fight between some boys in boats on a river is described as a naval battle yeah indeed Indeed. instead of uh, taking the biscuit a boy is sneaking the garibaldi 
instead of being in the carts, meaning in trouble, they're uh, right among the ribstons. Right, exactly. So, yeah. Which is a form of apple, I believe. Yeah. No, definitely. I think it. It. it I mean, Woodhouse is always about the language, isn't it? I mean, and that's part of the reason why whenever I watch a TV adaptation, I always find it sort of underwhelming. Right. And yes. even even Jeeves and Wooster, the sort of the, the touchstone for these kinds of adaptations, it's just I'm like, yeah, I can take it or leave it. You know, <laughs> it's one of those things. I much prefer reading the book to the uh, to oh, watch the show. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And Stephen Fry, I think, or was it Hugh Laurie? One of them said as much when interviewed about that program that I think Stephen Fry said something like, there are three glories in a Woodhouse book. There's the language, the dialogue and the plot. And they had to do without one of those things. Indeed. Indeed. So they had to make the most of the other two. Although I would argue they also made a mess of the plot as well. (laughs) But uh, still quite an entertaining show for the first two series, at least, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. The White Feather is set at Riken. So it's the sequel to The Gold Bat and also a series of short stories that he wrote in between the two novels. There's a really good opening chapter, I think. I think he really knows how to open a novel at this point because he eases us into the new story with some old familiar characters from The Gold Bat. For readers who've read that, they're like, oh, here's Trevor and Klaus, we remember them. But they're not actually characters in this book. They're just, they've graduated from school, they're at university now, and they're paying a visit to Riken with the Oxford A-team in rugby. The A-team, I think, is like the third team, right? Oh, is that right? I, I don't actually know I that. I think so. I think okay. you have the first 15, the second mm-hmm. 15, and then it would probably hurt their feelings too much to be called the third 15, so <laughs> they're called the A-team. Oh, I see. I don't know much about sport, but someone will correct me if I'm wrong. So there's this Oxford University rugby team that's come and they've absolutely trounced Riken because Riken are having a bad year for rugby after the glories of the year which uh, was depicted in The Gold Bat. And uh, there's a great point made about this as if it's an immutable truth of public school life that a good year is always followed by a bad year, not just in terms of sport, but in academia as well. In fact, it's implied that the two are inseparable, that it's this question of the general spirit and morale and uh, attitude of the school, which comes through both in their academic work and in their sport. So after the match, all of these Riken old boys and their current captain Allardyce have this post-match discussion and they also see their old housemaster Mr Seymour and this is a good device for setting the scene and preparing us for the story because they talk about what's been happening since the gold bat in the school bringing us up to date and they also lay the ground for the themes and Mm -hmm. the characters of the book because it says uh, Allardyce had succeeded Trevor as captain of football at Riken and had found the post anything but a sinecure and they complain about the current first team and how they give themselves airs. The rummy thing is that the worse they are, the more side they stick on. You see chaps who wouldn't have been in the third in a good year walking about in first 15 blazers and first 15 scarves and first 15 stockings and sweaters with first 15 colours round the edges. I wonder they don't tattoo their faces with first 15 colours. It would improve some of them, said Klaus. Then the conversation strays from rugby to wider problems. There's a feud with the boys of the town, and it's likely to get worse with an election coming up. The mayor, 
Sir Eustace Briggs has retired. We met Sir Eustace in the Gold Bats when he came across as a ridiculous, prejudiced and unpopular figure. And in our episode on that book, my guest Alexander Rennie said that we readers are left hoping he will receive his comeuppance at the next election. But in this novel, we find out that was not to be, that he was re-elected by a comfortable majority. But now he has to resign due to ill health prompting another election, and this time the Conservative candidate is a Riking old boy and school governor, Sir William Bruce. So this time the boys have an interest in the election they hadn't in previous ones because it's one of their own, so they all support him. Whereas the boys of the town support the challenger, Saul Pedder. It's a typical class divide. Yeah. Public school boys support the conservative candidate and the lower class boys support the radical candidate. You've hit upon a quite a good point, right? which is that obviously Woodhouse uh, you know, sort of plays to the class system a lot, right? And you can almost see where his sympathies lie to, to some extent, right? because he is clearly a, a snob in some sense, right? Because he, he thinks that the you know, the upper classes are sort of rightfully there, I guess, right? But at the same time, he sort of makes fun of them as well. So it's just a nice, interesting setup, I feel, right? Well, he was a public school by himself, of course. Indeed. And yeah. as he yeah. writes these public schools, he's very much writing as one of them. And that's probably why they were so popular, because the readers sensed that... Uh, he was an insider. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, he shares their attitudes. I think as he got older and became more of a man of the world he probably would became a little more egalitarian in his mm. attitude but yes of course everything's rooted in this class system and yeah. how could it yeah. not be at the time indeed i mean the class system still completely rules british life so how much mm-hmm. more so there back then before the uh, first and second world war and the um welfare state and all <laughs> these other things that yeah yeah so the prefects and the masters are worried there's going to be a lot of fighting in town the housemaster wants the headmaster to declare the town out of bounds to the boys for the duration of the election campaign, but it is not to be, as we shall see. In the second chapter, our hero, Sheen, is introduced. He's a studious boy who mostly keeps himself to himself. Um, he's a bit of a mystery to the other boys um, and perhaps a bit of an object of contempt. He had been friendly with a character called Stanning. Yeah. He was mentioned in the previous chapters. They they saw him sneaking out mm. after lockup, so he's been established already as a, a wrong sort, yeah, not the sort to be associated with. But Sheen has recently become more friendly with Drummond. Drummond was a minor character in the Gold Bat, but now he's uh, ascended to a more major role in this novel. He's the <laughs> head of the house, head of uh, Seymour's. He likes Sheen because he enjoys his piano playing. Yep. And, and Drummond doesn't like standing, so Sheen hates to choose between them because it means hurting someone's feelings, and he doesn't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but he yeah. wisely, as Woodhouse remarks, chooses Drummond. So, I mean, do you, do you think that, to some extent, Woodhouse put some of his what he perceived to be his character traits into into Sheen because you know the, the fear of giving offense, the being you know nice to everybody, and not really you know. That felt like something that Woodhouse would want to do as well. I don't know the, the man personally, obviously, but that's the feeling well, I would it's get. An, it's <laughs> an interesting thought. When he was at school, because he was one of the ones, unlike Sheen, who did well in sports, and he was in the cricket and the rugby team and boxing, he was quite popular figure, I think. Mm-hmm. But he certainly has this 
aspect to him of being alone. Certainly in his professional life, it seems he's always wanting to get away from socialising so he can get back to writing. And he was famous for being shy and uh, bashful. So yes, you're good. That's a good point. I think there's a lot of him in, but also in Drummond, I think Drummond is probably very close to what Woodhouse would have been at like at school, uh, respected boy who's as Woodhouse sees it has the balance right between sport and studies mm-hmm. he doesn't approve of boys who neglect their sport and he doesn't approve of boys who completely neglect their work indeed and Drummond is seems to get the balance right I think as far as Woodhouse is concerned whereas uh, Sheen might be a little too much of a swatch for his taste because um, in this next scene where Stanning confronts Sheen he's interrupted him at his Thucydides Sheen was just making something more or less like sense out of an involved passage of Nicias's speech in which that eminent general himself seemed to have only a hazy idea of what he was talking about. Stanning has been visiting a former pupil called Mitchell, who is described as being a young gentleman of rich but honest parents, which is a play on the old cliché, poor but honest parents. But in order to see this Mitchell boy, they have to break bounds, so Sheen isn't too keen on doing it. And Stanning essentially accuses Sheen of being a coward, which we will come to and realise is the whole theme of the book. So Sheen freely admits he's too cowardly to break bounds. And it says, as a rule, in stories, the person who owns that he is afraid gets unlimited applause and adulation and feels a glow of conscious merit. But with Sheen, it was otherwise. The admission made him, if possible, more uncomfortable than he'd been before. Anyway, uh, Sheen and Stanning part on poor terms. The next chapter, Sheen's study is invaded by two boys, Linton and Dunstable. Dunstable is not to be confused with Drummond, which I found it hard because they both start with D. They're very different characters. Uh, Linton and Dunstable, I think, were also vaguely in the gold bat as minor characters. Linton turns out to play quite a well, both of them turn out to play quite a significant part in the book, but here they just come to annoy Sheen by coming yeah. in, pretending they've been invited to tea with him and eating all his food, which they call gaslighting nowadays, I suppose. Yeah. And Sheen is too... Uh, too polite, or, I suppose. Too yeah. awkward, yeah. Or too yeah. polite, yeah. too afraid of hurting their feelings to say anything. And uh, Drummond, the head, head of the house, who he was supposed to be having tea with, comes in and when he finds out what's been going on, he uh, tells Sheen off for not standing up for himself. Yeah. I thought this bit was interesting. I hate hurting people's feelings, said Sheen. Oh, rot, as if anybody here had any feelings. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's a good turn of phrase there. <laughs> I wonder if Woodhouse enjoyed that about public school, that there weren't too many feelings on display, which can lead to awkwardness and embarrassment. Stiff up a lip and all that, so, yeah, of course. The big scene that sets off the whole main plot of the book is that there's been fights in, in town, mostly with this red-haired boy called Albert. Red hair is usually a sign of trouble in Woodhouse, I think. During Bobby Wickham, if I remember right. Uh, so she had red hair as well. And Jeeves advises against Bertie getting involved in anyone with quite so vivid a shade of red. And, Indeed. And when Jeeves <laughs> says something, you better listen. Uh, yeah. And basically, Sheen turns tail and runs away when there's a fight. And the only person who actually sees him do it is Drummond. 
and Drummond is absolutely disgusted and Sheen is dead to him from that point. But he doesn't tell anyone because that's another part of the schoolboy code. Running away from a fight is definitely against this public school code, but sneaking on your fellow schoolboy is certainly also against the code. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, somebody else who'd seen Sheen earlier puts two and two together and starts a rumour that he's run away from the fight and... Yeah, it was Stanning, right? Who kind of... That's that's right. Stanning is, we soon realise, is the villain of the book. They decide to have an an indignation meeting to decide what to do about Sheen and his letting the house down. Mm -hmm. Also, Rigby was trying at the moment to, to turn into idiomatic Greek verse the words, The days of peace and slumberous calm have fled. And this corroboration of the statement annoyed him to the extent of causing him to dash out and sow lines among the revellers like some monarch scattering largesse. I think this is when the junior day room tries to kind of throw pots and pans at Sheen's door. And as a result, he gets, uh, Rigby gets uh, cheesed off with that. So. I've also made a note that Drummond's attitude to Sheen is that he'll probably be sick enough on his own account, mm-hmm. i.e. his a sense of guilt he will feel will be punishment enough, which I think is Woodhouse's own attitude to the situation. Yeah. Because obviously he has a great deal of sympathy for Sheen, mm-hmm. as the rest yeah, of the sure. book will show. And here's one more quote. By murdering in cold blood a large and respected family and afterwards depositing their bodies in a reservoir, one may gain, we are told, much unpopularity in the neighbourhood of one's crime. While robbing a church will get one cordially disliked, especially by the vicar. But to be really an outcast, to feel that one has no friend in the world, one must break an important public school commandment. And uh, describe Sheen living in a world of ghosts, where he's always looked through and uh, completely shunned. Indeed. But in a way, he benefits from this excommunication by being able to concentrate on his studies Maybe it's a blessing that's in disguise. He's in for this prize called the Gottford Prize, of which his only serious rival is the uh, his arch enemy, Stanning. Stanning will not do any work on principle. He's relying <laughs> solely on his natural talent, I suppose. Yeah, but I, I often wonder actually about that because uh, I mean, Stanning always says, "I'm not going to do a stroke of work," and I think all of us have sort of come across kids like that in school who will say, hey, I'm not going to do anything, but who knows what they're doing in the privacy of their own home kind of thing. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they must so. have picked up the knowledge at some point that they need to pass the exam. Correct. I think it's it's a question of doing as much as you need to, but no more. Mm. So if doing the exact right number to pass the exam or get into the college you want to go to, that's admirable. But the moment you go over and above that, that's when you're considered a, a swat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, and Sheen does still play fives, so he still does get some exercise. Yeah, I remember actually when I was a kid, I, I read about this stuff and uh, fives, and I, I didn't know what fives was actually, right? And so I think, and this was before the days when you could, you know, go on the internet and look something up. So I think it, it took me a couple of years before actually somebody could explain to me what fives was, right? <laughs> so I was wondering, what is this thing? And then I just realized it was some kind of hand tennis, essentially, right? This which you play against a wall. I honestly don't remember what it is. We played it once in my school. 
I was saying in one of the other podcasts, we hear a lot about rugby and cricket and athletics in these books, but not much about fives. But in this book, you do actually get it's quite a lot of fives going on, but you don't really hear much of the actual gameplay. That's true. But I suppose it's something you can play on your own, so it's ideal for Sheen. Or at least you can practice on your own. Exactly. You can hit a ball against a wall with your palm, right? So it's you know, reasonably easy to do by yourself also. Yeah. Anyway, Sheen decides that he has behaved shamefully by running away, that he can't rationalise it away as being sensible or following rules. Or he has to admit that he was cowardly and he wants to redeem himself. So he actively sets out to have a fight with, is it with Albert again? Uh, yeah, he, he goes down to, down to sort of fight with Albert, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and of course, because he has not trained in boxing or any other form of combat, he gets um, royally beaten. That's shown as an example of how not to go about fighting. <laughs> um, but fortunately, he is rescued by a passing friendly gentleman who turns out to be one Joe Bevan. Who is a boxing expert and indeed a former lightweight champion of the world, which is very fortunate. (laughs) On hearing that Joe Bevan is a boxing instructor, Sheen asks if he can have lessons from him. Bevan, who has seen something in Sheen because he got completely thrashed in the fight but he didn't run away and Bevan show, thinks that shows spirit so yes he agrees to take Sheen on as a pupil. Mm-hmm. Sheen's boxing lessons take place in a public house called the Blue Ball and so it's all arranged that he's going to go there every day from now on and because he's such an outcast no one will even notice he's gone so that's mm-hmm. very convenient. Joe Bevan, according to Norman Murphy, is based on Jerry Driscoll. Well, actually, according to Woodhouse's own notebooks, he's based on Jerry Driscoll, who was the boxing instructor at St. Paul's uh, Public School. St. Paul's was particularly well known for its boxing. Boxing. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wrote down in his notebook various things that Jerry Driscoll said and... The straight left rules the boxing world is apparently yeah. something he said. And <laughs> and Joe Bevan says something like that uh, multiple yeah. times in the book. It's his catchphrase. And Joe Bevan's other notable characteristic is he's a big fan of Shakespeare and likes to quote Shakespeare yeah. because he was uh, an actor before he became a boxer. Now there's a slight digression that turns out to be very important. There's... Uh, well, it's the uh, naval battle that we mentioned at the start. And there's a character called Jackson here, and we have to get excited here because obviously Mike Jackson in the novel Mike is a character that carries on into Woodhouse's adult novels, yep. even into your favourite Leave it to Smith. Smith. Yep. Yes. Yep. And he uh, goes to Riken and he follows his elder brother there. So is this Mike's elder brother? But consulting a series character index at madameulalead.org is mm-hmm. conclusive because there's a Jackson who appears in four of the short stories who's in Spence's house. The Jackson in this story is in Dexter's house. And in the book Mike, Mike's elder brother Bob Jackson is in Donaldson's house. Oh, yeah. So he could have moved house a lot or Woodhouse could have forgotten what house he put him in or they could all be different Jacksons. Yeah. It's a common name after all. 
And also the house names are also not fixed, right? Because uh, it changes based on who the master is at that point. So yes. that could be another thing. So. Well, that's the other thing uh, Norman Murphy says about Riken is it seems to be in a slightly different place in all three of the books. He seems to have moved it about in his head. In this case, it seems to be based in Shrewsbury School because it's on the Severn River. Mm-hmm. And Woodhouse knew a lot about Shrewsbury School because he had cousins that went there and it was in his beloved Shropshire. Yeah. So I think the uh, I remember reading somewhere that they were trying to place where Riken was and sort of looking at all the evidence, right? And what was it? So one was obviously it's on the seven. That That is one data point. The other data point was that I think from the cricket pitch or from the pavilion, you can look around and see three counties. So mm-hmm. if that's the case, then very likely it's sort of at the somewhere in Shropshire, but near the border of probably Worcestershire and is it Herefordshire uh, over there? Or uh, Yeah, Hereford is close by, I think. Right. So it's probably those three counties somewhere in that uh, in that region, right? Just the border area of that. Have you uh, ever been to the UK? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I live in Holland now, so I, I come to the UK uh, quite a bit. And uh, uh, there's an interesting story, actually. So... We used to, uh, we, we drive into the UK quite a bit uh, coming through the Channel Tunnel. And, uh, you know, if we're going to London, then once, I think we, we had the, the whatever, this is before the the phone navigation. So we had one of those, you know, TomTom navigation systems. And it took us through to Dulwich, right? And yeah. as I was passing, I, I looked at the sign and it said Dulwich College, right? And I was like, Oh my God! Woodhouse went here, and my wife was like, "What are you talking about?" And I'm like, "You know, it's it's a thing. We got we got to stop here. You know, take take a look at the place yeah. and so on, right?" And I'm guessing, you know, Dulwich College had some elements which were sort of taken into Riken as well in terms of the way that. Uh, oh yes, it, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, it, yeah. It, where Riken is was a was a thing which was in my head for a long time. The uh, the rugby rivalry between Riken and Ripton is based on the one between Malvern College and Repton. Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. Yeah. It's uh, it's a mixture, I'm sure. But even even the name, right? Is it comes from Rekin or something, right? There's like a, yes. a mountain of some kind, I believe. Uh, yeah, the Rekin is in Shropshire, and okay. yeah, I think there's a Rekin. I think I was talking about this with Alex Rennie in the previous episode as well. That mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. That I think there's a Rekin College as well. So yeah, I'm from Shropshire as well, so uh, okay. I, know, yeah. I know the Rekin well. Nice. What a go is life. Let us examine the case of Jackson of Dexter's. O'Hara, who had left Dexter's at the end of the summer term, had once complained to Klaus of the manner in which his housemaster treated him, and Klaus had remarked in his melancholy way that it was nothing less than a breach of the law that Dexter should persist in leading a fellow a dog's life without a dog license for him. Jackson is the character we're following for this chapter, but he's uh, joining in in a boat race. They've decided to have a boat race because they had an argument about who could row the best and they're rowing along the the Severn River, as mentioned, and they come across some boats from St. Jude's School, which is the school which uh, Dexter's house has a rivalry with. Yeah. So it's uh, this is not a public school, not a posh school. These will be uh, lower class kids, I suppose, but they were mortarboards all the same. <laughs> and they've got their boats on the river too. So when their boats come into collision, 
the natural thing is that they have a fight, and both crews had quickened their stroke until the boats had practically been converted into submarines. And it's happening by the town bridge. The town bridge was a sort of loafers club to which the entrance fee was a screw of tobacco and the subscription an occasional remark upon the weather. Here gathered together day by day that section of the populace which resented it when they asked for employment and only got work instead. The fracas is uh, witnessed and there's a big stink about it in the school and hereafter that portion of the river upriver from the school is deemed out of bounds and this is very bad news for Sheen because his boxing lessons at the Blue Boar take place upriver. So this is all part of Sheen's challenge I think to gain redemption it's not enough for him to stand up to someone in a fight he also has to learn to break rules Woodhouse seems to be saying. Yes so he decides to break bounds anyway and row up in his boat to the blue boar where he's taken upstairs to the room where Joe Bevan has his boxing lessons and then we hear a bit about his progress as a boxer and it seems he learns quite quickly he's a very promising specimen then there's this incident in the fives court Mm. Sheen although he doesn't he's not friendly with any of his fellow pupils is friendly with one of the masters and he arranges to have a fives match with his with one of the teachers it's the custom to stick up a piece of paper on the court you require to reserve it and a boy called Attle finds his piece of paper and screws it up and claims the court for himself where Sheen finds it and Sheen finds the first practical use of his boxing technique to uh, stand up to himself against Attle and he hits Attle and then the master comes in and uh, Attle just slinks off Mm -hmm. but uh It so happens Sheen has a black eye from his boxing sparring and the master asks him where he got it and he is able to reply truthfully that he's been boxing. Mm -hmm. The master doesn't need to know where he's been boxing. He presumes he's just been in the regular because, of course, Riken has a boxing instructor. Mm -hmm. But Attil notices the black eye and decides to make some use of this and tells the story that he hit Sheen, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And because no one's talking to Sheen. Sheen doesn't hear about these rumours, so there's no one to contradict Attil, basically. So it's made to look even worse for Sheen. It looks like he's been having the worst of the fight, but he's got the master to come and... Intervene. Yeah, yeah, he can't fight his own battles. Uh, And then there's a second indignation meeting against Sheen, but uh, Drummond's head of house forbids any violence against or persecution of Sheen. Mm-hmm. The next, we have the return of Dunstable and Linton, the pair who got a free dinner out of Sheen earlier. They've decided to break bounds as well. They're going up the river just as an act of defiance against rules that they don't think should apply to seniors. And they go to the Blue Boar, but they don't see Sheen. Sheen's there upstairs having boxing practice, unbeknownst to them, while they're down in the public bar. And uh, they encounter Albert. The redhead worthy. Yeah. And while they're in the pub, Albert sinks their boat, which means they're in a bit of a fix as to how to get back to school until they spot another boat and they help themselves to it. And we have already figured out that this must be Sheen's boat. So when Sheen comes up, he sees a sunken boat and assumes that's his boat that's been sunk. And he asks around and some witnesses say that there were two 
voice from Riken in the bar and he manages to basically he identifies them one of them boys as Linton. Mm-hmm. So as far as he's concerned, Linton has gone so far as capsizing his boat out of yeah. pure malice. But all this is, doesn't help him get back to the school. And if he doesn't get back before lockup, he'll be exposed as having broken bounds. Mm-hmm. So all he can do is set off and walk. But then the next chapter is called Deus Ex Machina. Now, this is obviously a pun because in a story, Deus Ex Machina means that an external force comes and rescues everyone. And it comes from Greek theatre when literally there was a machine that brought a god down. But here the machine is this newfangled machine called a car. Yeah. The car comes along the road. And this is one of the most interesting things about the book, I think, is the way it treats the automobile, which is still quite new at this point. And it's being driven by a fellow pupil, Jack Bruce, who's a day boy. He's driving his father's car, and his father is Sir William Bruce, who's the man who's standing to be mayor and is the Riken old boy and Riken governor that all the boys support. And his son has an interest in motor cars. He wants to be in the motor car business when he grows up. And his father has bought this car with a view to getting him, the son, to drive voters to the polling booth, particularly elderly or infirm voters. Anyway, Bruce is one of the, well, he's, let's say at this point, he's the only boy who is still speaking to Sheen. He's the most interesting character, I think. He's totally aware of everything that's going on, but he's very much above it all. He doesn't take sides. He's he's another person who enjoys Sheen's piano playing, So, mm-hmm. but he's a strong, silent type. He, he um, offers Sheen a lift back to school, which is a godsend for Sheen, and he's impressed that Bruce doesn't ask him any questions. There was never any waste of words about Jack Bruce. Of all the 634 boys at Riken, he was probably the only one whose next remark in such circumstances would not have been a question. Bruce seldom asked questions. Never, if they wasted time. He's very matter-of-fact, getting the job done. No unnecessary words, which I find rather attractive. (laughs) And this conversation they have in the car might actually be my favourite scene in the whole book. You seemed to be going at a good pace just now, said she. About 30 miles an hour. She can move all right. That's faster than you're allowed to go, isn't it? It's a sign of the times, of how times have changed. Indeed. indeed. Uh, Bruce says that 30 miles an hour is indeed faster than the speed limit at the time, but he hasn't been caught yet. He's keen to find out how fast it can go. And it's certainly very handy that he's going at a fair pace to get Sheen back to school in time. Indeed, yeah. And Bruce asks Sheen if he can come and listen to him play piano again later. If I just go back to the uh, the the part where Linton and Dunstable sort of steal the or not steal but take the the boat, right? Wouldn't that have been against the schoolboy code to some extent? I mean, obviously you're stealing somebody else's property, right? It, it feels like something which would be not on in some sense, right? So well, we'll come to that now actually because Sheen confronts Linton, mm, yeah, and Linton is absolutely amazed that Sheen is daring to speak to him and he looks at him as an object of wonder and when Sheen accuses him of sinking his boat Linton to his credit just tells him the truth of what happened and as far as he was concerned he and uh, Dunstable weren't stealing a fellow public schoolboy's boat they just assumed it belonged to someone from the town but but that's what I mean right to some extent stealing it's almost as if stealing from a 
one of your own is a problem, but stealing from somebody else is, is okay kind of thing, right? Yeah, that is the sense we're getting. It's not admirable, of course. Mm. But in Linton's mind, there's a distinct difference. And Linton isn't necessarily presented as the most admirable of characters. I'm also going to interject here that this is, for seasoned Woodhouse readers, an example of a, a misunderstanding being untangled relatively quickly. We're used to misunderstandings dragging on for much longer than this. Anyway, from this point on, Linton considers he owes Sheen a favour. That he's transgressed the code and mm-hmm. uh, for his own honour he needs to do Sheen a favour. But it doesn't affect his attitude to Sheen otherwise. He's not suddenly going to be friends with him. He treats him in exactly the same way. But this favour comes very soon because Stanning, Boo Hiss, is uh, trying to cause more mischief. And he's made up this story that Sheen, far from standing up to Attle at the Fives Court, actually apologised to him. And he tells this to some of Seymour's house. Now, Stanning isn't part of the same house as Sheen and the other boys from Seymour, so he's interfering in house matters that Mm -hmm. don't concern him. This seems to be the attitude of Drummond, at least, and... We get the feeling from Woodhouse as well and Linton. But such is the animosity against Sheen at the time. They're all too eager to listen to stories against him. And this new outrage against schoolboy honour means that they're determined to rag his study. And Stanning immediately realises that this will benefit him because if Sheen's papers are out of order, it'll interfere with his studies for the Gottford Prize and... Mm -hmm. Thus, he, Stanning, will stand a better chance of winning it. But Linton sneaks off and tells Drummond of their intentions. And as we've mentioned, Drummond is not in favour of any persecution of Sheen. So he comes and puts a stop to it and rebukes Stanning for interfering in his house's business. Then there's a chapter about a rugby match that at first seems irrelevant to the main plot because Sheen's not involved, but it turns out to be crucial to the plot. Yeah. It's been saying over the course of these podcast episodes that whereas in The Pot Hunters, it's a rollicking good novel, but the plot is a bit uh, episodic and it doesn't necessarily hang together that well as a plot, but he's really got the hang of it by now, hasn't he, of mm-hmm. getting everything a unified plot. So it's a game against Ripton. As I mentioned, this is based on the rivalry between Malvern College and Repton College. Uh, But this year, Rykin isn't doing so well. But they look at the team sheet and they notice that Ripton isn't playing half its regular team. And so they think they're in with a chance. (laughs) What they don't know is that Ripton's uh, reserves are just as good as their main team. The reason its team is so depleted is because they've had an outbreak of mumps at the school. One of the drawbacks to playing Ripton on its own ground was the crowd. Another was the fact that one generally got beaten. But your sportsman can put up with defeat. What he does not like is a crowd that regards him as a subtle blend of incompetent idiot and malicious scoundrel, and says so very loud and clear. It was not, of course, the school that did this. They spent their time blushing for the shouters. It was the patriotic inhabitants of Ripton Town who made the school wish that they could be saved from their friends. The football ground at Ripton was on the edge of the school fields, separated from the road by narrow iron railings. And along these railings the choicest spirits of the town would line up and smoke and yell and spit and yell again. As Wordsworth wrote, there are two voices. They were on something like the following lines. Inside the railings, School! 
Back up, school! Get it out, school! Outside the railings. Gowett Ripton! That's the way, Ripton! Twist his good old English adjective neck, Ripton! Sit on his forcibly described head, Ripton! Gowett Ripton! Haw, haw, haw! They ain't no use, Ripton! Kick him in the eye, Ripton! Haw, haw, haw! The bursts of merriment signalled the violent downfall of some dangerous opponent. The Ripton half who was taking the scrum gathered it cleanly and passed to his colleague. He was a sturdy youth with a dark, rather forbidding face, in which the acute observer might have read signs of the savage. He was of the breed which is vaguely described at public schools as N-word, a term covering every variety of shade from ebony to light lemon. As a matter of fact, he was a half-caste, sent home to England to be educated. Drummond recognised him as he dived forward to tackle him. The last place where they had met had been the roped ring at Aldershot. It was his opponent in the final of the feathers. Yes, I haven't mentioned this before, but Drummond is a boxer and he's the best boxer in the Riken. In the previous year's uh, gymnastics exhibition at Aldershot, which is mentioned a lot in these school stories, is a mm. real life thing. Drummond won the, the featherweight title last year against this mixed race boy Patero and now he's come across him again on the rugby field and yeah well we'll talk more about that later but it's certainly a bit of a yep. racist tinge to that yeah but I think it's, it's a time and place right it's not really well I mean of course it's the attitudes were the attitudes of the time right and I, so it, they have to be read as such and not sort of separately I feel right? because there's this whole there's this rush to sort of you know Baudelaire's books including Enid Blyton and you know uh, Woodhouse and everything which I, I just feel it's it's a bit over the top right uh, it has to be read for the fact that it was in a particular time and place and obviously you know those that language or that those uh, words will not be used today but that doesn't necessarily mean that I would impute any sort of, you know, sort of racist ideas to Woodhouse or Enid Blyton for that matter. Yes, I'm saying that there's racist elements that are flying around at the time that are reflected in this book. Uh, in public schools, there was this colour prejudice. Yeah. Uh, and also, yes, I'm not in favour of bottlerizing books either. Mm-hmm. Anyway... Ripton beats Riken Hollow and they're very despondent about it but the more serious upshot of the match is that Drummond catches mumps and he has to take to his bed and he has to pull out of the house boxing tournament and Sheen is unable to see him to ask to compete in his place. He can only write Drummond a letter to the sanitarium or wherever he is mm-hmm. and Drummond completely not expecting this letter from Sheen, replies, no, I don't think so, because how would he know? Exactly. Yeah. Sheen doesn't mention that he's been trained by the great Joe Bevan, because it yeah. doesn't occur to him that it's, he should. And whenever you come across mumps in a Woodhouse book, it's always a little tinge of sadness when you know that he himself had a bad case of mumps in 1901, and in all likelihood, that made him infertile, thus yeah. had a massive effect on his life. So. Indeed. But he never like wrote about this in any self-pitying way. In fact, he spoke of his mumps as a good opportunity to get a lot of writing done because he was off work and staying with his yeah. family. Drummond's reaction to Sheen's letter was that he assumes it's a pose by Sheen mm. that he's trying to play the hero. And he is indeed trying to play the hero, but we know that he has the boxing training to back it up and uh, Drummond doesn't know that. It was all fine and noble of him to want to show that he was no coward after all, 
like Leo Chumley or whatever his beastly name was in the Lads of St Ethelbertus, or some such piffling book. But, thought Drummond in his cold practical way, what about the house? If Sheen thought that Seymour's was going to chuck away all chance of winning one of the inter-house events simply in order to give him an opportunity of doing the young hero, the sooner he got rid of that sort of idea, the better. If he wanted to do the Leo Chumley business, let him go and chuck a kid into the river and jump in and save him. But he wasn't going to have the house let in for 20 Sheens. I love the mention of throwing a kid in the river to jump in and save him because that's exactly what happens in um Worcester does that right uh, yeah. oh it's 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 a recurring it's a drop plot, yeah <laughs> it's a recurring plot line in Woodhouse yeah. but it actually happens in the previous book he wrote Love Among the Chickens oh I see yeah and the Eucharist yeah. yes and even in that book this it's he makes a big deal of how it's already a cliche in literature because the main character Jeremy Garnett is an author and he mentions he's used the plot himself uh, five times in the last four weeks or something (laughs) but it never happens in real life so he makes it happen by throwing the object of his affections father into the the sea and rescuing him Yeah. yeah so and here it's come up yet again but Sheen has just been counting on competing in the house boxing tournament and proving himself without really considering that it's not as simple as that. You have to be in it to win it. You could imagine that if he'd managed to talk to Drummond face-to-face and explain, then probably all would have been well, but mm. he hasn't accounted for this setback. So that's why this rugby match was so important. Yeah. Now we're coming to the end of the term and all of the house championships and house games take place and Seymour's Sheen's house isn't doing very well. Then there's the Gottford Prize examination, and Sheen thinks he's done badly. But Woodhouse has some wise words about the importance of discussing examination with your fellows afterwards, which is something Sheen isn't able to do. Doing an examination without comparing notes subsequently with one's rivals is like playing golf against a bogey. The imaginary rival against whom one pits oneself never makes a mistake. Whereas, in fact, all of the other candidates made lots of mistakes. It was to questions 10, 11 and 13 of this paper that Cardew of the schoolhouse, who had entered for the scholarship for the sole reason that competitors got excused two clear days of ordinary schoolwork, wrote the following answer. See Encyclopedia Britannica, Times Edition. If they really wanted to know, he said subsequently, that was the authority to go to. He himself would probably misinform them altogether. (laughs) So, yeah, there is some humour in this book. Indeed. Sheen is passed over for the school fives tournament, even though he's known to be good at fives. So Seymour's have no successes except for the Gottford Prize, which Sheen wins, and the announcement is greeted with near silence. During his next training session with Joe Bevan, Sheen is not at his best, and Bevan asks him what's wrong, and it comes out that he's been passed over for the school boxing competition. Joe Bevan suggests that he compete at Aldershot, which is, as we mentioned, the inter-school gymnasium event. This is a new idea and he immediately seizes on it, even though it's unclear at first how he's going to be able to be accepted as the Riken candidate. Because, uh, well, Drummond was supposed to go, but Drummond has months. Stanning is next in line. But then Jack Bruce reveals that Stanning is also out of the running. He's feigning injury to get out of going because he's scared to face Patero, that mixed-race youth that we met at the rugby field. 
So as things stand, Raikin are not sending anyone. So Sheen has an interview with the gymnastics master, Mr. Spence. And in order to explain himself, he's forced to tell the story of his initial disgrace and everything that happened subsequently. But he does not intend to mention Bevan's name, but does so accidentally. But he does keep it from the master that he's been training with Bevan. He only says that Bevan has encouraged him to compete and speaks well of his chances. And of course, Spence knows very well who Bevan is and his (laughs) opinion carries a lot. So he decides to, well, he mulls it over for a while. I thought it was interesting that there was no question of Spence not believing Sheen's story about mm. Bevan because this this assumption that public schoolboys do not lie, whatever yep. else mm, yep. dastardly mischief they might get up to, they do not lie. So, though we witness in this very book that they sometimes do. Anyway, he's <laughs> unsure what to do, the master, because he doesn't want to put a pupil who's not ready in for a grueling boxing match that might leave him permanently injured and fortunately it so happens that visiting the school is O'Hara one of the main characters of the gold bat mm-hmm. who is master boxer so Spence asks him to spar with Sheen during the lunch period Woodhouse doesn't depict this scene but cuts straight to an absolutely amazed O'Hara assuring Mr Spence that Sheen will beat anyone he comes in contact with I love that that's just all happens off off stage. Yeah. (laughs) So the final instalment of the story in the magazine is all about this final test of Sheen in Aldershot. Others of the spectators are old boys come to see how the school can behave in an emergency and to find out whether there are still experts like Jones, who won the Middles in 96, or Robinson, who was runner-up in the Feathers in the same year. Or whether, as they have darkly suspected for some time, the school has gone to the dogs since they left. Woodhouse tries to create some sense of jeopardy because Bevan tells him that he will need a good second, that a good second isn't essential for a champion, and that someone to like train him and uh, encourage him from the ringside. And he doesn't have anyone else, so he asks Bevan to come, but Bevan can't come until later on in the the day's events. So Sheen is scared that he won't make it. Sheen does well in his opening bout and Patero also wins his bout, but both Sheen and Mr. Spence agree that he lacks intelligence as a fighter. And so he thinks that with superior science, he can beat him. And it does sort of remind one of the whole thing that was going on in America at the time of about uh, black fighters and white fighters and yeah, i think it was jack johnson 19 1910 or something right yeah like, so a little later than this but already black fighters were doing well and it put the white boxing establishment uh, made them a bit afraid and <laughs> put their the pride of their uh, race and they were and hence the expression great white hope we want yeah. someone to prove that we are superior to this this race that we has always been assumed up to now to be inferior. And that's mm-hmm. what the whole racial hierarchy is based on. And if so, the way out of it is to say, well, yes, it's, they're good at boxing because they're half savage, they're, they're brutal. But we, the uh, sophisticated people, have the superior science. So we mm. ultimately beat them because, and there seems to be a lot of this. Uh, he mentions the word savage a few times and also yeah. the, the N word. So, yeah. I wonder actually, was 
I'm not, and uh, in, this is just speculation, obviously. I don't know if Woodhouse actually understood what the N word was freighted with in America, where, because I think in England, it's it's or actually in Europe, it's not uh, really freighted with the sort of history that it it is within in America, right? So I don't know whether he you know, just used it because it was as just another word for a uh, a person versus in America if somebody uses it it's a very different uh, epithet. Well, right? he so, only uh, uses it in reference to what the public schoolboys are saying or thinking. First, it's used, and it's almost like he's making a joke against the public schoolboys for saying they use this word to mean anything from a shade of lemon to yeah. it's a catch-all term that is essentially <laughs> meaningless. And the second time it's used, he's sort of in um, Sheen's own head. Yes. So he's saying that this is a word in currency with public schoolboys, which it is, because the book that inspired him to write his first novel, what was it called? Acton's Feud by Frederick Swainson. Yeah. There was this book that he gave a rave review to in a magazine, and he said it was the book that inspired him to Right, and that, and I tried to read it, and it's just full of racism. So, uh, I see. Yeah. Uh, so I couldn't really get through it. But yeah, certainly a lot of effect going on at the time. And I guess Woodhouse was too just generous-minded to really take on that mm-hmm. ideology fully. But it was just an accepted attitude. That's how people were. Yeah. And it's interesting when he he'd just come back from America. Right at this point, he'd been to mm-hmm. America in 1904, mm-hmm. and he'd had this these interviews with. Kid McCoy. So he, yeah, most of the time he was in America, he spent in the boxing world interviewing boxers, just absolutely boxing mad. And, but also in one of his early magazine stories set in America, he remarks about the curious attitude Americans have to black people, meaning Mm. white white Americans, of course. (laughs) The kid shook hands with the stranger. Being British born, he had none of the Americans inherited dislike of the... And then there's a different racial epithet in inverted commas. From Kid Brady Lightweight, P.G. Woodhouse, Pearson's Magazine, September 1905. So he's saying what what you said, that there's a different attitude. And he just finds it just an object of curiosity that they should be so mean about these people. I think he did naturally assume that black people were inferior, but he didn't see any need to be cruel about it or mm-hmm. yep. he was just yep. but he probably would having been involved in the boxing world in america when he was staying there he probably would have been well aware of this debate if you can call it that mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. black versus white boxers yeah but it isn't the main thrust of the book obviously the main thrust of the book is sheen's journey his redemption yep. so predictably enough sheen does face patero in the final and also predictably enough Bevan does show up at the 11th hour. He even uses the phrase at the 11th hour. <laughs> it's just and at a point when Sheen is temporarily getting the worst of the fight. Yeah. Um, while they're fighting, the Riken boxing instructor happens to mention to Mr. Spence that he did not train Sheen himself. And Spence finally figures out that Bevan must have been Sheen's instructor and therefore Sheen has broken bounds. He just keeps this to himself for a while to while he thinks what to do about it. Sheen wins, of course. The next chapter is the fallout at Riken, because obviously, apart from the boxing instructor and the gymnastics master, there's no one else from Riken there. Mm -hmm. There's no one to witness it. But the events of the day are reported in the newspaper, The Sportsman, and Linton is the first to read the news. 
and we read his reaction and his, his sense of absolute astonishment soon gives way to his sense of mischief as he realizes he can play a, a very funny joke on the rest of Seymour's house by hiding the news from them until the last minute because they're going to have this sort of show trial for him. They've decided to end the term with a sort of court-martial where they get Sheen in front of them and formally excommunicate him from the house for his cowardliness. Yeah. And Linton thinks, oh, this will be funny. And in the middle of this, he just reveals what's happened. And (laughs) predictably enough, they're less keen on betraying Sheen as a spineless coward when they find out he's just won the whatever weight he's in. Is it lightweight, featherweight? Lightweight, yeah. The lightweight boxing at Aldershot. And then everyone turns on Stanning, who's there, the interloper, who's not even part of the house. And he's very much shown the door. If I hadn't hurt my wrist, Stanning began. (laughs) Hurt your wrist, said Sheen. You got a bad attack of Patero. That was what the matter with you was. You think that everyone's a funk like yourself, said Stanning. Pity they aren't, said Linton. We should do rather well down at Aldershot. And he wasn't such a terror after all, Sheen, was he? You beat him in two and a half rounds, didn't you? Think what Stanning might have done if only he hadn't sprained his poor wrist just in time. Look here, Linton. Some are born with sprained wrists, continued the speaker. Some achieve sprained wrists, like Stanning. Stanning took a step towards him. Don't forget you've a sprained wrist, said Linton. (laughs) The dialogue is just so good. It's just so on point. Unbelievable. (laughs) Even in these school stories. Indeed. The final chapter is all about what's going to happen to Sheen regarding his rule breaking. Yeah. Uh, Spence has been considering this. He doesn't want to report Sheen because he thinks what he did was admirable, personally, but rules are rules. And, quote, if a master ignored a breach of rules in one case with which he happened to sympathise, he would in common fairness be compelled to overlook a similar breach of rules in other cases, even if he did not sympathise with them, in which event he would be of small use as a master. So he does tell the headmaster about this, but puts it in the most favourable possible light, i.e. he doesn't mention that it happened in a public house. But uh, Jack Bruce happens to be passing while this, or he happens to be in the room, or the adjoining room at the time. And he speaks up and mentions that he took Sheen to the boxing lessons in his car, which meant that technically Sheen isn't in breach of the rules because the rules only related to going up the river in a boat, which is a point that had no one seems to have considered before. But then the headmaster is an old-fashioned sort and he doesn't know much about cars and he is absolutely flabbergasted that a young, nice well-brought-up boy should be driving cars. (laughs) And then Bruce reveals that he is actually going to go into the motor business, which is even more of a shock. I think the headmaster would very much rather cars didn't exist, let alone that good upper-class sons of public figures like Sir William Bruce (laughs) are actually going to dirty their hands with oil in such a a (laughs) sordid and crass way. And it's said that the the, the headmaster doesn't really approve of any of these courses that his school does, That apart from the good old classics of Latin and Greek. And he's only really tolerating them uh, on sufferance. Yeah. I've often wondered, actually, so, I mean, how old would, like, Bruce be? He'd probably be 
16, 17, not more than that, I would assume. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, but then, you know, how is he able to drive? I'm assuming the licensing thing was not as rigid. Was 18 not the age? Or, I mean, was could he drive well, before they, that? They would, I don't know. They would have had to have made up all these rules on the hoof as... Because, I suppose that's true. Yeah. Yeah. At first, this would have been a very minority pursuit. There wouldn't have been many cars about, and, and it took them a while to figure out what was dangerous and how dangerous it was. And obviously, there were no seat belts then. And, and originally, they thought, oh, we'll have someone running in front of the car with a red flag. Yeah. And, and then you can see at this point that the speed limit is under 30 miles an hour. But mm-hmm. clearly, I don't think Bruce can be underage, or they would have mentioned that as well. So... Yeah, I don't think they've brought in the age limit yet, or if they have, it's 16 or under. Mm-hmm. Following the Motor Car Act of 1903, you had to be 17 to drive. The speed limit was 20 miles an hour. I like this, the headmaster. Bruce, he said. Yes, sir. Tell me, do I look very old? <laughs> Bruce stared. Do I look 300 years old? No, sir, said Bruce, with the stolid wariness of the boy who fears that a master is subtly chaffing him. I feel more, Bruce, said the headmaster with a smile. I feel more. You will remember to congratulate your father for me, won't you? Because I forgot to mention that his father did win the election, in part thanks to him ferrying voters to the polling booth. Although... I don't know what was to stop the voters from lying to him about who they were going to vote for. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not the done thing, you know. (laughs) Mm. That's basically how the book concludes with this this comment on the the sign of the times, this comment on the changing times. And I I really like that uh, aspect. And it helps make the book more of a historical document, really. some record of how people felt at the time of these new <laughs> devices. Yeah, yeah. The other thing which always uh, interested me was that the um, the title, the white feather. I mean, obviously, white feather is seen as a sign of cowardice or something like that, right? But my understanding, and I was reading a little bit more about this a uh, few weeks ago, um, and it seems like there was an organization which was set up during, I think, the, the First World War, which basically handed out white feathers to you know, men who were not in uniform because right. it was to kind of, you know, uh, encourage them to sign up and so on. Um, yeah. But obviously this is 1907, so this is way before that started. Uh, so I'm assuming, but, so the connotations of cowardice were still there. It's just that it was made explicit by probably this organization and these things that happened uh, during the war, I assume. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I could look into when it originated, but yeah, it's a mm-hmm. very old uh, symbol, I think. The use of the phrase white feather to symbolise cowardice is attested from the late 18th century, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. Yeah. I think at the time the book came out, no one would, everyone would know what it meant. I think nowadays, maybe if you handed this book to someone, you might need to explain that to them. Yeah. I don't know if it's such a well-known thing anymore. I I also interestingly found out that in in the US, the white feather is a a sign of bravery and sort of good marksmanship in the army kind of thing, right? So it's kind of just the reverse, really. So uh, I I didn't realize that before I looked into it a bit. I didn't know that. Uh, So anything else to say about this book? Well, one thing, one of the, um, somewhere in the book, he quotes um, a poet where he says um, his eyes were sable or something like that. So there's a quote from a poem, right? So I, I looked up the, the poem and apparently it turns out it's from a, 
a poet called uh, C.S. Calverley, who was apparently, what was, he was the, the founder of so-called university humor, whatever that means, right? So I'm assuming it means some kind of, you know, ribald kind of, uh, kind of humor. And, and apparently this guy was a, is quite a well-known poet in the sense that he went to Oxford, then he won like a poetry prize there. Uh, and then he was summarily expelled for breaking bounds or you know some something like that in Oxford. And then he went to Cambridge and won the same uh, a similar prize there. So he's he's literally the only poet to have won <laughs> the top poetry prize at both Oxford and Cambridge, right? And he's written like a bunch of stuff like ode to beer and you know ode to uh, tobacco and stuff like that, right? Which is uh, I suppose that would have been popular at the time. And Woodhouse may have read it and been been influenced by it to some extent. Hmm. I'm just looking him up. Well spotted. Yeah, there's also uh, Macaulay is referenced as well with Horatius's efforts on the bridge. And obviously Indeed. Shakespeare is referenced um, quite a lot as well as is normal with Woodhouse. Yeah. So Macaulay, uh, also just because of, cause I grew up in India, right? So Macaulay was the person who, who wrote the, the infamous Macaulay Minute, which was about setting up education in India in a, in a way which was sort of similar to the, the British public school system and all of that, right? So there are a lot of people who kind of, uh, I guess, blame Macaulay for the way that <laughs> Indian education turned out, uh, which is, you know, uh, I guess it's a bit unfair because uh, a lot of good things happened as a result of that, but it's also seen as you know a way to kind of sort of further the let's say the uh, the depredations of empire to some extent, right? So that was that was part of the problem with with Macaulay in that sense. I, I'm wondering whether this is the same Macaulay or not. I think it's the same Thomas Macaulay. Yeah, yeah, that um, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Been playing a. Uh, I, I do a lot of um, quizzing in my spare time, and uh, I do play a lot of the British leagues as well. So the Quiz League of London, and uh, there's another league which happens in sort of the Manchester area. And I've realised that over time, I've learned a lot more about some of the stuff which I initially read about in Woodhouse, but I had a very odd interpretation of it. And then as I as I learn more about it, I'm like, oh, this is. This connects back to what I what I read when I was a kid, but I I had a totally weird idea about it when I uh, you know because I was reading it without the context, I didn't know what the context was, and so now when I talk to somebody, I talk to somebody about it. Oh, this is what it means. Like, okay, we got an example. I'm just thinking actually. So, um, like I think one of the things which um, which struck me when I was uh, actually this wasn't so much in Woodhouse as in Tom Brown's school days, right? Where they serve beer at school. I don't know if you remember that, but uh, you know they, they talk about how the kids drink beer at school. And I'm like, really? I mean, that seems odd, right? <laughs> but as it turns out, it was basically a very, very weak concoction, right? So it wasn't really very alcoholic, right? Small uh, beer. Yeah, so uh, I don't even know is that like one percent or something. So, but really, something you can just have and it's not not an issue. So small beer. That's the other thing. I didn't realize that was a thing. A real thing, actually. Yeah, so uh, that's that's interesting. Uh, well, a lot of these things I will have only have worked out in adult life. I've so much I also only learnt about from Woodhouse, and um, the full significance of which didn't become clear till later. Indeed, yeah. But Tom Brown's school days, of course, is set a lot earlier. Yeah, um, yeah. set the eight. The 1830s, 1850s, I don't know. Yes, probably uh, 1850s, I would think, but yeah, I'm not 100% sure. Tom Brown's School Days was written in the 1850s, but set in the 1830s. Mm -hmm. And um, if you go back 
not so much further back than that. Beer was recommended as the everyday drink because the water wasn't safe to drink. Mm, the process yeah. that it goes through when you brew beer purifies it, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you'd have beer for breakfast and beer during the day and the British workmen would, yeah, it was seen as a good thing. You've got those Hogarth engravings where gin is the ill of society, but beer yeah. is yeah. the the good kind of alcohol that we should all be encouraging. <laughs> And there's yeah. an angry letter when tea becomes starts becoming popular with the working classes. There was an angry letter to one of the newspapers decrying the use of tea because it slowed things down with the time it took to boil it and how it was a blight and whatever happened to good old English ale. <laughs> uh, fantastic. <laughs> so I suppose it's not that surprising that in the mid-19th century they would still be drinking beer at a, a school. And, and these are... These are not the younger school children. These are mm-hmm. people people who will be yeah. soon yeah. soon entering into adult life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, you did mention uh, that uh, the uh, the other thing which um, at least I, I for one learned all my sort of biblical references from Woodhouse, right? So literally, if it's Yale, the wife of Heber, or you know, all of that stuff, uh, is just something that. Only Woodhouse sort of gave me that thing, and I, and I used to look them up from time to time to understand what those stories were and so on, right? But uh, yeah, literally, other than Woodhouse, there is no no source for me. Uh, I would. Uh, those are the kinds of references that didn't tend to stick in my head. I would sort of just glaze over them, even though <laughs> I was uh, I went to a Christian school and uh, brought up in a Christian country. There's uh, most of the Bible is at least until recently has been extremely obscure to me mm-hmm. thank you so much for not at all talking about woodhouse is something that i love so you know this is not this is the you know something which uh, i enjoy so thanks again to Edgewell and thanks to acast wikipedia woodhouse scholars and authors madamnewlately.org and all you wonderful listeners please spread the word about the show if you like it and feel free to follow the show on social media and i'll see you again next time on woodhouse keeping <laughs>